I'm on, right? Okay, it says I'm on low battery, so I will um, preach in low power mode. It's fine. It's a 9 a.m. service after all. Well, good morning. It's great to be here. And a uh, super easy passage uh, to welcome me back with. Just a little human sacrifice to start us off on a crisp Sunday morning. And uh, what I want to talk about first is this idea of uh, New Year's resolutions. How many of you made a New Year's resolution this year? How many of you still have a New Year's resolution intact? Okay. I made a resolution, by the way, a few years ago not to make resolutions. Technically, I failed that year, but I've been crushing it ever since. But there's something about the nature of our desire to make resolutions. It's like we know that there's something in our life that needs to change, but it's going to be difficult, it's going to be painful, and so we'll put it off till the new year, and then we'll, you know, abandon it by the end of January. Um, and, and this doesn't just happen in New Year's, this happens year-round. We may have, uh, you know, a friend that we talk to regularly, and they're... They're so sick of their job or their uh, relationship that they're in or, uh, you know, they're deeply in debt. And you talk to them and you're like, find a new job. Get out of the relationship. Stop spending money. You know, the, all of the things. And they're like, well, you know, I got reasons for not doing it. Because it takes uh, a move of confidence to kind of break through whatever pattern is. And you don't know what's going to be on the other side. And so a lot of us just choose to keep living with a problem. And it's often easier to avoid difficult decisions than face the pain of pressing on through uncertainty, especially when we don't know what's on the other side of that decision. But the lesson this morning is that difficult decisions are the most formative. They lead us to our breaking point and through our breaking point And there are also opportunities for real growth, for discovering our true self, and also building a deeper relationship with God. And so with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we dive into the Word this morning. Father God, we thank you for this time together and those that you have gathered here this morning. We thank you for the gift of your written Word and for your Son, Jesus. We ask now that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us and through us, that you would speak uh, and give us uh, ears to hear and hearts to receive that which you are saying to us this morning. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So there's the elephant in the room, which we're just going to deal with first. This is a big ask. God comes to Abraham and makes a strong request. And I even find the wording of this request somewhat amusing because he says, Abraham, and he says, here I am. Now take your son. He only has one son. So Abraham's tracking, right? He's like, okay, I know what son you're talking about. He's like, your only son. And Abraham again's like, yep, still tracking. He says, the one you love. He's like, yes, I know. And then God says, Isaac. He's like, yes, I know which son. Let's get to the request. And he says, uh, go to the land of Moriah and offer him up there as an offering on, on one of the mountains, which I'll tell you about later. That's a lot of specificity on the front end and not a lot on the back end. And so we can imagine the request here and and what this does. And it's a strange request to put it mildly. 
And some of us may be tempted, and you'll read commentators and things like that, and even hear skeptics uh, of the Christian faith that will cite a story like this and say, uh, you know, they kind of pat themselves on the back and say, uh, you know, what God is asking Abraham to do here is completely immoral. You know, it's just a disgusting request. It's like, uh, yeah, they knew that then. Um, that's that's not news to anyone in this story. Abraham is horrified at this request. And uh, in case you encounter someone uh, thinking like that, that's what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, where we think that we're more morally pure or have, uh, you know, uh, a more sensitive radar to things like that than people in the story. No, no. Abraham was deeply troubled by this request. He understood human sacrifice is wrong and sacrificing my son who I love is wrong. And so we can imagine the emotional and moral anguish that this would have caused in Abraham. And people have taken to calling this, by the way, uh, the book that you all are going through or you know, loosely based in the sermon series on, is called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And the author of that, Pete Scazzaro, refers to this level of struggle for Abraham as the dark night of the soul. And that term, by the way, comes from 16th century Spanish poet John of the Cross, and it's used to mean a crisis of faith. When someone says a dark night of the soul, they're talking about a crisis of faith, an existential struggle, uh, you know, and a heavy emotional burden. And in this story, this is the interesting thing. Abraham goes through a crisis of faith, but God creates this crisis of faith for Abraham. Now, I've, I'm not God. Uh, I'm glad we got that out of the way. I'm not God. But as I read this, I think, wait a second. Doesn't God have a vested interest in all of us not having crises of faith? Wouldn't that be what you would do if you were God and you want a relationship with people? It's like, you know what? Maybe not ask them to kill their son. Maybe not create a crisis of faith for them. But we have to then say, well, why? There's a reason for God's actions here. And it says at the beginning that he set out to test him. But one of my uh, favorite authors is a, a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, by the way, um, when my wife and I, when we were having uh, our first child, who's over there romping around, uh, we didn't know the gender yet, and we were throwing around names, and I really wanted the name Soren, and we had a girl, so we dodged that bullet uh, for for the time being. Uh, I wanted a name after Soren Kierkegaard. So uh, anyway, Soren Kierkegaard, great author. He wrote uh, a philosophical treatise called Fear and Trembling, and the entire book is about this passage. And in it, he marvels at the moral courage of Abraham to live out a higher calling in spite of the judgment he would surely face from friends, family, and society at large. And he refers to this as a leap of faith. And speaking specifically of these verses, he says this, and I quote, If anyone on the verge of an action should judge themselves according to the outcome, they would never begin. And so he says, you know, if if Abraham thought through the logistics of this and thought, what's it going to look like uh, in the stories if I, you know, go up on this mountain and sacrifice my son? He wouldn't have done it. But he senses a higher calling from God. He's not worried about what other people are going to think. He's not even worried about how he's going to reconcile this with himself. He decides to trust God through this process. 
And Pete Scazzaro in Emotional Health and Spirituality says this. He says, going through a dark night of the soul may be God's way of rewiring and purging our affections and passions, that we may delight in his love and enter into a richer, fuller communion with him. End quote. And by the way, just for bonus points, if you keep hearing me say the phrase dark night and it triggers Batman for you, there's a reason for that. Christopher Nolan was adapting Fear and Trembling uh, into the movie The Dark Knight. It is about a crisis of faith. It is about that leap of faith and the doubt. Uh, so anyway, that's just a fun fact for you. My uh, daughter has a little Batman action figure, loves to talk about Batman. So I had to include that little Easter egg for you. But as we move on, so we, he gets this big ask, and he chooses to see this as a big opportunity. So that's the first thing we want to see, is that the big problem is presented to him. He chooses to lean into it. He doesn't run away from a difficult decision. He doesn't run away from a problem. He leans into it and decides to see, okay, where's this going to take me? And what he does is he discovers a new self, and he discovers his truer self. In verse 5, we actually get this hint. So God gives him this request. He wrestles with it, and then he decides, okay, well, we're going to pack up and head to the mountain. And as uh, as they start to ascend, and it's just Abraham and Isaac, he even says to them, uh, we are going to go worship, and we will return to you. Now, he must have wrestled with this and decided to himself one of three things. Either he's lying to everyone there, and he has no intention to bring Isaac back with him. Or he doesn't intend to go through with it, and he's just hoping there will be a way to wriggle out. Or uh, he believes that God will not make him go through with it. And the tension builds. It, it, in, in good storytelling, he makes it all the way up there. He's like, no one's called it off yet. It ties up Isaac. No one's called it off yet. The knife is in the air, ready to strike, and the angel intercedes. And... Uh, the way this plays out, you know, it, it seems like Abraham took this jarring message and decided to see where it would lead him. And ultimately, there are two outcomes. One, uh, he's gotten to know God better. So as God steps in, intervenes, and says, of course, I don't want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac. Um, his faith has been rewarded and his trust has been deepened. And by the way, this is a breakthrough moment in discipleship. When we take that leap of faith and our trust is deepened, this happens for Abraham in a way that he could go to church every Sunday and sing songs and memorize scripture and never achieve the level of depth that he got from taking this leap of faith, following where God led him and being rewarded for his faith. And so there's something interesting there that's... There's an existential depth. There's a lived-in experience to his faith that he could not have acquired any other way. And you can probably see where this is going. It's probably the same for us. So he gets to know God better. He also knows himself better. He knows that he is someone who can move forward in uncertainty. He can trust God with himself and with his family. And... uh, Since we're in a Presbyterian church, I can't help myself. I have to quote uh, John Calvin, who, at the beginning of his uh, theological treatise uh, called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, this almost, it's on the opening page. He says, wisdom consists entirely of almost two parts, 
the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But these two are connected by so many ties that it's not easy to determine which precedes and gives birth to the other. And so John Calvin, one of the greatest minds in the history of the Christian tradition, says, wisdom is built of two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And I don't know which one comes first. I don't know which one feeds into the other because they're so intimately tied together. So if your goal this year is to get to know yourself better, you're going to have to lean in to your relationship with God. And what we learn from Abraham is leaning into your relationship with God means taking some leaps of faith, putting your trust in God and to see where that will lead you. And if your goal is to get to know God better this year, you need to be better in touch with your own emotions. You need to get to know yourself better. And so by getting to know God better, you get to know yourself better. By getting to know yourself better, you get to know God better. And Abraham, uh, willing to enter into a painful experience to see if God is who he thinks he is, is rewarded with a realer relationship with God. And just imagine the day two of this story. What What is Abraham's relationship like uh, with his personal confidence, his security, his ability to move forward uh, with this intimate relationship with God after this experience. What could he do? What couldn't he do? What leap can you not make after you've taken this leap and been rewarded? And we see that Abraham goes on to do great things. And so the question for us this morning is what are your opportunities to discover? Now, Opportunities are frequently camouflaged as uh, painful decisions and, and, and hard-breaking points in life. But God says this at the end of the passage, Because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offering. And so the results are based on pushing through this difficult decision. So there are three areas where I'm going to encourage you to look for difficult situations. The first is personal. And whether it's, you know, you've lost your job, you're dealing with sickness, you're dealing with death in the family, you have financial struggles, or you're just everyday run-of-the-mill existential dread. Are you going to keep running from those things? Or are you going to lean into them and say, what is the hard decision that God is leading me to make? Even though I don't know what's on the other side, am I going to be able to lean in and trust where God is going to take me with this? So that's the personal level. But... Let's say you've gotten by completely unscathed in life. You have no problems at all, no issues going on. I guarantee someone around you does. Shoot, you might even be their problem. But (laughs) let's say everything's going great for you. Congratulations. I guarantee there are multiple people in your life going through the types of struggles I just named. Job loss, uh, frustration at work, trapped in a bad relationship, sickness, dealing with death in the family, financial struggles, uh, all of these things are all around us in culture. So if you have been blessed to not have this kind of opportunity, someone around you does and you can enter and come alongside them. But there's a third category that I want to challenge you with this morning. And this one I think is especially pertinent. There's church hardship. Now many of us treat church as a refuge a place where we can rest and relax from the troubles of everyday life. Some of us need that, and hopefully you find it here. But that's not all it's supposed to be. Um, For some of us, it creates a crisis of faith, a dark night of the soul when church gets hard. 
And I was rereading this week um, Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. And he says this. He says, throughout the course of U.S. history, when Christians had the opportunity to decisively oppose racism in their midst, all too often they chose silence. They chose passivity. The refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression. And so do you see what happens when we avoid the painful opportunity? When we don't lean into it, when we don't press in to the opportunity that God's provided, we perpetuate the problem. And so whether that's a personal problem, whether it's a friend or family problem, or whether it's a systemic societal problem or a problem within the church, if we don't deal with it, if we don't lean into the problem and see where God will take us, uh, we're, we're, not, we're not being faithful to God's calling to us. And so by entering into a church space that is intentionally diverse and multi-ethnic, you are leaning in to the breaking point of our culture. Now many people who object to the multi-ethnic church movement, complain, it's just too difficult. God wouldn't want us to do something that difficult. God wants us to feel safe. He wants us to feel secure. But what we see in today's lesson is that there are situations where God navigates his people through a crisis in order to become the people they are meant to be. In fact, remember what I said at the beginning, is from God creates this crisis of faith for Abraham to navigate, and God has presented us a multitude of crises of faith as the American church. So the question is what we're going to do with it. And so each one of these questions requires a difficult decision to engage in a problem in the world or in yourself. And to quote Soren Kierkegaard again, he said this, to contend with the whole world is a comfort, but to contend with oneself is dreadful. So maybe maybe you feel like a righteous warrior out there taking on the problems of the world, but you don't want to deal with your own problems because it's a lot more daunting task to shake yourself to your core and realize, if I go through this thing, I'm going to come out a little bit different. And I don't know what that's going to look like. But that's the cost of discipleship. That's what it takes to push through. So the question for us is, what do you do when you hit a wall? And uh, one of my favorite books last year came from the um, the Anglican pastor, Esau McCauley. Uh, and he wrote a book called How Far to the Promised Land, which was his memoirs of growing up as a black Christian in the American South uh, in recent uh, recent history. And in his final chapter, he says this, Life is hard. The road is long and winding, and the path to the promised land is not always clear. Nonetheless, hard lives are beautiful in their own way. Wanderings are instructive in their own right. And that's the good news for us this morning, is that the good news isn't that there's no hard times ahead of you, that there are no hard decisions to navigate, no difficult paths forward. I wish I could tell you that, but it's not true. It wouldn't serve you to say that. But the good news is, that we have the example of Abraham. We have the example uh, throughout Scripture, even the life of Jesus himself and in the life of countless uh, sisters and brothers in Christ throughout history, that God is there to meet us in these struggles. And the, the best news for us is that God is there for us at the end of the dark night. Now, we noted that God says to Abraham, 
essentially, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, the one you love from me. And so now I'll bless you. But now we can say to God on the other side of the cross, now, God, I know that you love me because you did not withhold your only son, the one you love, Jesus, from me. And so in the end, it was not God who required a sacrifice to save his people, but it was God who provided the sacrifice to save his people. So this is a God that we already know from countless examples that we can trust. We can lean into difficult decisions. We can make hard choices and trust God with our formation, with the outcome. And as people to whom God has demonstrated the greatest love, we can press through dark nights, trials, and difficult situations because the greatest act of love has been done for us. The truest source of purpose and identity has been gifted to us And we see from Abraham to Jesus and countless others throughout history that God is there to meet us at the end of a dark night. Amen.